Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den tyske journalist, kommentator og forfatter Ulrike Hermann. Hun var oprindeligt uddannet bankassistent og ville have brugt sit liv på at arbejde i en bank, da hun blev voldsomt optaget af samfundet omkring sig. Det blev hun, fordi der i begyndelsen af 80'erne kom historier om den tyske skovdød. På grund af udstedningen fra bilerne og udledningen fra de tyske kraftværker, begyndte de tyske skove simpelthen at forfalde og forsvinde. Det problem løste man dengang ved at sætte nogle filtre i bilerne og nogle filtre i udledningerne fra kraftværkerne. Men for Ulrike Hermann blev det en slags vækkelse, og hun besluttede sig for, at hun aldrig i sit liv ville have kørekort. Hun ville aldrig føre en bil, når den kunne få noget så smukt for hende som skovene til at forsvinde. I stedet så tog hun en uddannelse i historievidenskab og filosofi ved Freie Universitet i Berlin, og blev en ivrig og kompetent iagtager af den økonomiske udvikling og hvordan den spiller sammen med forurening og miljøproblematikker. Hun er i dag en af Tysklands førende offentlige kommentatorer, der bliver brugt meget på tv og i radioen i forskellige debatter. Hun er en prominent kommentator fra Tats, som vi ynder at kalde vores tyske søsteravis. Og hun har skrevet en række bøger om kapitalismen, og den seneste er som sagt Kapitalismens afslutning, der netop er udkommet på dansk. Ulrike Hermann gør i bogen meget ud af alt det gode, kapitalismen har gjort. Hun siger, at der ville ikke være nogen kvindefrigørelse, hvis det ikke var for kapitalismen. Kapitalismen har skabt en velstandsstigning, der gør, at selv de rige fik en interesse i, at de fattige gik i skole og kom ud på arbejdsmarkedet. Det er væksten i samfundet, der har muliggjort, at pigerne ikke bare skulle gå hjem, men komme i skole, og der blev investeret i deres uddannelse, fordi man havde brug for dem som arbejdskraft. Det er den kapitalistiske udvikling, der har skabt den teknologi, som har frigjort kvinderne fra husarbejdet, anfører hun. For 100 år siden tog husarbejdet i en almindelig familie med fire personer omkring 60 timer om ugen. Særligt vaskemaskinen var ifølge Ulrike Hermann her en fuldstændigt revolutionerende Opdagelse. Så man har ikke demokrati uden kapitalisme, hævder Ulrike Hermann. Man kan ikke have kvindefrigørelse uden kapitalisme, hævder Ulrike Hermann. Det er meget, meget, meget svært at bekæmpe fattigdom i stor skala uden kapitalisme, hævder Ulrike Hermann. Hun understreger også, at det ikke er sådan, at bare fordi man har kapitalisme, får man kvindefrigørelse. Og bare fordi man har kapitalisme, får man demokrati. Men hendes grundlæggende pointe er at hvis venstrefløjen for alvor vil kritisere kapitalismen, må den også forstå, hvorfor kapitalismen har enorm opbakning. Og må den også forstå de fremskridt, kapitalismen har skabt, og de enorme kvaliteter, der kan være ved den. Hvis ikke venstrefløjen forstår den kapitalismen kritiserer, så bliver den magtesløs og ligegyldig. For det helt store problem ved kapitalismen er ifølge Ulrike Hermann, at den vækst, som har været fundament for fattigdomsafvikling, kvindefrigørelse og demokrati, den også er anledning til, at vores naturgrundlag bliver smadret, og kapitalismen kan ikke klare sig uden vækst, og kloden kan ikke klare mere vækst, hævder altså Ulrike Hermann, og derfor bliver vi nødt til at finde en anden vej. Jeg lover, at hun i løbet af den her samtale vil nå frem til den anden vej til sidst, og hun finder muligheden, i hvert fald for mig, lidt overraskende sted. God fornøjelse med samtalen. So should we get to it? Yes, of course. Let's start. Well, the title of your, of your book, The End of Capitalism, suggests that thinking that's 
very familiar to us here, here at Information. We've been prophesizing the end of capitalism a lot of times, and it never happened. But but then the book is very interesting because you actually spend a lot of time showing people the strengths of capitalism and, and what problems capitalism is, is solving, which I think is a very, very good strategy. Uh, and a lot of people should read that and would learn a, a lot from that. But it also begs the question for me, what was your own way into becoming a critic of, of capitalism? What was your personal journey? Well, you know, basically, I was very shocked when uh, the woods in Germany started to die in 1982. And at that time, I was 18 years old. And for me, it was scary that such a big and important ecosystem like the woods were about to disappear. Now, you know, in German, it's called Waldsterben. And um, at that time, it was uh, possible to save the woods uh, because uh, we had filters for the cars and filters for the big electrical plants. But this time, you know, the uh, dying of the woods returns and there will be no solution. All the woods in Europe will die. So and that is a very scary yeah, outlook on on life. So for you, it was because we have a lot of people here writing the newspaper. We have two different kinds of people. Someone who are very much about environment and then became critics of capitalism. And then people who are critics of capitalism who became very much uh, into the environment later. So for you, it was it was the connection between the environment and capitalism. Yes, yes. For me, the protection of the environment was first. And then I became skeptical of capitalism. And for example, I never ever did a driving license because for me it was obvious that the car was one of the major reasons why we destroy nature. So for me, it's impossible to drive in a car. Uh, how, how did it develop over time? Because you've written uh, several books about it and you also have the privilege of, of writing in TAS uh, frequently <laughs> to, to, to our pleasure. Uh, but how, how did your understanding of capitalism develop over time? Uh, it didn't develop at all. I was always a critic. I mean, it, yeah, it, it might be uh, strange to say that, but you know, my first book on capitalism was called The Victory of Capital. And it, des it describes uh, how capitalism evolved, uh, the role of money, the role of growth, uh, the how crises came about. In the end, the last chapter was already called The End of Capital. Uh, and the whole book was published in 2013, but even 10 years ago, you know, in this very small chapter at the end, chapter 20, uh, everything was outlined that I now wrote a whole book about. So did you know when you wrote that chapter that you would return to that and develop into a, a whole book? Yes, basically I knew that, yeah. For me, you know, I wrote four books on capitalism and those Four books, they are for me completely connected. They are one big project, which is now, of course, coming to its end because you cannot write about the end of capitalism <laughs> <laughs> and then start again. It, it seems very important in, in your book to demonstrate to people on the left that capitalism is not as bad as its reputation. And you even have the, the phrase, viele Linken dürften irritiert sein. Uh, you, you, you write, it seems that this was an important part of the book. And it, it's quite a lot of the book is actually about showing people the qualities and the achievements of, of capitalism. Why was that important to you? I think for two reasons. The first reason is you must understand 
uh, how positive many aspects of capitalism were in order to understand why it is so difficult to do uh, climate protection uh, or why it is so difficult to abolish capitalism. If it, it was just exploitation, it would be very easy to get rid of this uh, system because everyone exploited would say, well, to hell with it. But uh, you have to understand that it is, at least uh, for the global north, a very good system to live in. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the problem. And just to give some examples, what uh, capitalism brought about that we think is very positive, that starts already with life expectancy. Nowadays, uh, people in the global north have a life expectancy of over 80 years. And uh, 200 years ago, people died at the average at the age of 35. So, you know, we've got... (laughs) 45 years of uh, surplus uh, life. And of that, of course, that is just a huge advantage and you can't just deny that. No, But there are also many other positive aspects like uh, because we had growth and because we had uh, riches, it was possible for everyone, including the girls, to go to school, to go to university. It was possible to have democracy and also such topics as equality, equality of men and women, equality of minorities, uh, the whole emancipation movements of homosexuals or uh, disabled persons, whoever uh, had was uh, discriminated against. All these movements were only possible because our uh, societies are so rich. So it was, you know, capitalism in a sense was liberating. It was freedom. So, and you have to understand that in order to see why it is so difficult to uh, somehow end capitalism. And I think that's also why you actually uh, see some people from minorities being very much into capitalism. Because if you're Black in America, sometimes it's the easiest way through the economic field that it actually offers you chances of becoming a basketball player or a rock star, that you have oppressed people who actually favor capitalism. And then you have intellectuals on the left who say, why do you favor that 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 system? I think that explains it as well. Yeah, but there's a second reason why I saw uh, uh, that I insist so much on uh, the positive effects of capitalism. Because if you say, well, capitalism is just exploitation, it's very, uh, it needs people to be poor in order for uh, development to be possible, uh, then you know, basically, as a left person, you have exactly the same ideas as the right-wing neoliberals, uh, or as they are called in the economic sphere, neoclassical theorists. Uh, It's just that your moral outlook is different. If you're a Marxist, you say, well, capitalism is exploitation. If you are a neoliberal uh, economist, you say exploitation is necessary in order for the industry uh, to thrive. But then basically, it's exactly the same position, only that uh, the left says, well, it's very bad that we have exploitation. And the neoliberals say, well, it can't be helped. Exploitation is necessary in order for the system to develop. And that's, of course... uh, a catastrophe that basically the left have exactly the same uh, uh, opinion as the right wings without even noticing. And the reality is completely different. The uh, reality is that capitalism is a system that can be politically changed 
to a very large extent. It's not necessary that you have exploitation. It is a system that thrives better if uh, the uh, workers uh, get uh, high wages because then the, you have the demand that's necessary in order to invest into technology. So capitalism itself is a system that allows for democracy, that allows for um, uh, well-off workers and so on. And it's really a pity that the left never ever <coughs> realized this because if they had realized the potentials of capitalism, they would have been much more successful in gaining rights and high wages for the workers. So, so if the left had accepted the premises of capitalism, uh, they, they, they would have they would have made more social uh, progress. Yes, exactly. People, I think people here in Denmark would say that that is exactly what the social democrats always did. Yeah, exactly. The Den the, the Danish uh, social democrats were much more advanced than the German ones. So I think some people here would say, well, well, you have some progress, but they're because of the welfare state and they gained these progress in a conflict with with capitalism that there were. I think everyone would agree that 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 capitalism enabled uh, wealth and, and because of, of wealth and it developed some technologies that it enabled uh, women's emancipation and kindergarten and, and 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 a lot of things. But but that the real social progress were made by Either some would say social movements, or others would say the welfare state, depending on 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 where you are. So they would say we have a field of different players, and capitalism is just one player, not the totality of the system. How do you see that? No, it's of course true that you have to fight for high wages, you have to fight for the welfare state. It does not come into existence all by its own. Or you could put it differently: it's a shame that capitalists don't understand capitalism. Uh, yeah, that's really a pity because the no normal um, owner of a factory thinks that the wages are just costs and that he would get rich if he reduces the wages. But that's, of course, a complete nonsense because the wages are not only costs, they are also the demand uh, and um, need to be high in order to have people able to buy all the goods that can be produced by the capitalist technology. So, but because most capitalists are really not able to see that high wages are necessary for the whole system to develop, it is necessary to have trade unions and to have political parties that force capitalists to pay high wages and that uh, install a, a welfare state. In a way, you could say that it was the trade unions who saved capitalism against the capitalists. I, I remember when I was young, my father told me about the Ford factories in America. Mm. And, and 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 he said, well, he doubled the workers' wages. And I asked him, is that because he was a socialist? He said, no, 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 not at all. This man wasn't a socialist. He was extremely right-wing, but he just understood the nature of capitalism. And that is kind of what you're saying as well, isn't it? Yes, exactly. I mean, it's not really known whether Ford really understood capitalism. It's just a nice story. But I mean, his saying that cars don't buy cars, but that you need workers <laughs> uh, that are well paid in order to buy all these cars that are being produced by the technology. I mean, that's just plain truth. Is it one of the points that you mentioned in the book? And, and I think all your points are made convincingly. Well, that's nice to hear. <laughs> oh, I think I think it is. It's it's very you you manage to process a lot of of very heavy data and and formulate them. So I wouldn't say everyone can read it, but everyone who wants to read it 
if you want to put an effort. And, and <clears throat> the, the link between capitalism and, and, and women's liberation is made before, of, of course, but it's, it's also very often challenged. How do you establish this link? Well, uh, uh, basically, first, uh, you can just see that uh, uh, as soon as a uh, society gets richer, girls also go to school. Uh, if you must imagine that in 19th century, just 150 years ago, only 1% of the male population went to high, uh, to high school. Everyone else either went to uh, just uh, a, um, the very basic school called uh, Volksschule in German, that were eight years where you just learned how to read and to write. And most, uh, and even this very basic education was only enjoyed by the boys. Many girls just didn't go to school at all. And that's because the parents couldn't afford their children to go to school because they were needed at home to work. So uh, you have to have a rich society for the girls to go to school. If a society is poor, they only send the boys and only a very small percentage of the boys has the chance to go to university. Now, and uh, nowadays in Denmark or in Germany, about 50% of all children have the opportunity to go to university. I'm not saying that everyone should go to university, <laughs> but you know, it is, uh, but everyone should have the possibility uh, to get schooled according to his wishes and in according to his gifts. And it is just a right, a very basic right to be educated. And that's only possible in rich countries. And well, this is the first link. And the second link is, of course, that uh, lots of the technology we use basically frees the women from household chores. Uh, I mean, the most important invention for women probably was the washing machine. Uh, it's uh, because before the washing machine was invented, uh, women spent hours and hours every day with washing uh, all the clothes of the household. And that's now uh, superfluous. And uh, that was really a liberation. Because if you see, um, if you look at uh, texts written by women in the 19th century, uh, their main problem was that they didn't have time. Uh, all their time was consumed by cooking, by washing and by heating. It, it took a lot of time just to heat a house. Nowadays, none of these duties uh, it takes a lot of time. Yeah, I was surprised to read the stats in your book. Of course, I knew that my grandmother would spend a lot more time than my mother who got the chance to go to university. But I was still surprised by the amount of time. I think it's 58 or 60 hours or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was Yeah, 60 hours per week were needed to somehow sustain a family. So women worked from the morning to the evening just to feed their families. And it was amazing, yeah. You know, some would say that capitalism always relied on exploitation, that first it was the workers here in the factories that were that were exploited and the children in the factories in Manchester, you know the story. And, and then when they gained rights, when they established unions, they gained rights, shorter work hours, higher wages, then we started exporting the exploitation to Asia and to other parts of the world that now the exploitation is still there as a part of capitalism, but we just put it in another part of the world where they don't have unions. And so we can still buy cheap iPhones and, and, still, and cheap T-shirts. 
Well, you know, it is true that there is exploitation. It would be just stupid to say that there isn't any exploitation. But again, uh, this exploitation is not necessary. If um, we paid more for a T-shirt coming from uh, Bangladesh, no one here in the global north would uh, be bankrupt or even poor. We could afford to pay for more for the T-shirts. Uh, uh, that's not the story. And basically, you know, we don't even trade with the poor countries. We trade with the rich countries. The best example is China. Everyone was worried in Europe what would happen with our uh, economies once China started to develop, because everyone was uh, afraid that we would get poorer once the Chinese get richer. But that was not the case. Once the Chinese got richer, Europe got richer as well, because now we had a big market for our own products. And at the same time, of course, we started to import from China. Uh, basically, you can see the same story all over. Uh, the rich countries trade with, with rich countries, and they only get rich if, other, if their neighbors or other countries are rich as well. And this is a fundamental insight that goes back to Adam Smith. Um, Adam Smith, a Scottish uh, economist uh, who lived in the 18th century and who is the founder of the national economy as a science, he already dealt with the fears of his compatriots that the English might get poor if the French somehow developed. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, this fear that, uh, and this idea that you need exploitation in order to become rich is very, very, very old. And uh, Smith uh, ridiculed this idea uh, in his very, very good book, The Wealth of Nations, and said basically, well, if the French are poor, where are we supposed to export to? As an, yeah, I mean, as an exporting nation, we need others to be rich in order to be able to export. And that's true uh, till today. And it's especially true for Europe that lives from its exports. But then if you want to export, others must be rich. It's very, very simple. Well, well and I think you made that point convincingly uh, as well. And then then you say that that uh, you you outline the strengths and the achievements of capitalism and and uh, and and as some as people on the left would say well this is almost all the thing that we appreciate from women's liberation to schooling to 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 education to to living standards and and then we leave the consumerism aside but and this in this totality uh, of things that we are in favor of they were enabled by capitalism But then you say, well, actually, we don't need a revolution to change capitalism. And I've just been overwhelmed by by the strength of of the system. You say that we we don't we don't need a revolution. It can be controlled democratically and changed. Would you explain that point? Yeah. Well, you have to see that democracy itself is also a result of capitalism, uh, because uh, I mean, the idea that everyone is equal and that all people should have the same rights is a very, very old idea. You can read that in the Bible. Uh, all revolutionary mo movements in Europe were guided by this principle. For example, in the 16th century, uh, when the um, farmers in Germany opposed uh, the nobility, they were, of course, driven by this idea, well, we have the same rights as human beings, as the nobility, but they never, ever succeeded. In order for democracy to become a political reality, you need to have a fairly rich society. And that's very easily explained. As long as you don't have any growth per capita, any growth per person, uh, if you have a stagnating um, agricultural society, and that was 
the system everybody lived in in the whole world till the industrialization began in England in the 18th century. So as, as long as you have a very poor agricultural society, the only possibility to get rich is to steal from your neighbors. In order to do that, you have to need, uh, you have to have weapons, you need to be king, and you need to have a nobility that has weapons and is ordered to the normal people on the land to work hard in order for the king and his nobles to live very nicely in castles. But once you know you have growth per capita, per person, it's no longer necessary to steal from someone else in order to be rich, because thanks to the growth, everyone can get richer. Of course, those who are very rich or those who own the factories and the companies are richer than those who just have their <laughs> body and can just be workers. But uh, nonetheless, even the workers can profit without uh, the factory owner getting poorer. And that's the moment when there is growth, that uh, democracy, political equality becomes real uh, possibility and even a reality. What I do not say is that growth necessarily leads to a democracy. Mm. It's only a necessary condition, but it is not uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy. For example, China is now rich enough to become a democracy. Nonetheless, it's still a party dictatorship. Uh, so China shows that it's not necessarily the case that uh, riches or wealth leads to a democracy. No, I, I remember when we believed that it would be like that, that when you got a middle class, they would demand political rights and and, and that would lead to demand. I think a lot of us believe that 20... Yeah, me too. I must admit that, yeah. <laughs> and and perhaps, you know, it will happen. You never know what happens next in China. You know, it's not uh, necessarily uh, clear that in, let's say, 10 years' time, 15 years' time, they don't have a democracy. No, I think what is clear is that all these uh, jumps they come in they come very often in unexpected ruptures and then yeah, afterwards exactly. they afterwards they seem uh, they seem predictable. So so where do you see the because at the moment I I also think we're at a time where people are just shocked about the concentration of power that we allowed to grow out of companies here. That we had a long period of time where we said well Markets can do the pol politics basically. That if we trade with one another, make free trade agreements, and 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 you know, antitrust was just about securing efficiency and securing the consumer, and the rights of uh, the citizens weren't taken so seriously. The link between economic wealth and political power wasn't very very clear. And now we're at a moment when people are waking up and seeing, well, maybe the financial crisis actually was the moment we got these huge banks. And and they will they have socialism, but we have neoliberalism here here on the phone. And now you have these tech giants that are enormous, and we have this pharmaceutical industry. And I'm afraid that in a in a moment or two we'll have a green industrial complex as well. How do you see the struggle between democracy and these capitalistic giants? Well, it's true that uh, we have giants, but uh, that's nothing new. Capitalism always meant uh, that. Very uh, big firms controlled uh, their own branch. 
um, or their own um, field of uh, business. That's nothing new uh, because, you know, uh, capitalism is a system where you invest into technology in order to produce goods that you can sell with profit. And this, uh, the, the very core of the whole system is the technology. That's um, a mechanism that was already described by Marx and um, he was completely right because, you know, if all the firms start investing into their technology in order to produce more goods uh, uh, more cheaply, then this means that in the end, the market is flooded by goods. And uh, this uh, destructive competition is always won, always, by the big firms and not by the small ones, because only the big firms, thanks to the fact that they produce very, very, very much, can be cheap per uh, single item. And because the bigger, uh, the big firms are always producing cheaper than or produce more cheaply than the um, smaller firms, in the end, uh, only a few uh, gigantic firms are left. And, you know, you could see that in the, already in the 19th century when it came to steel, to coal, uh, to uh, chemicals, a uh, car industry later in the 20th century, uh, 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 aviation, um, plane industry. Uh, no matter wh what you look at, it's always very few firms controlling everything from the resources to the final distribution. And now the um, internet firms like Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Facebook, they just uh, copy this law that has always been in existence in capitalism. Now, the question, of course, is how to control these enormous firms. And I mean, that's uh, was always from the beginning, uh, the duty or uh, the role of the uh, nation state. The nation state, as we have it today, with uh, <laughs> a huge government that uh, finances the schools, the universities, the welfare state, that uh, governs the markets by uh, lots of laws concerning uh, environmental protection or health protection for the consumers and so on and so on. This very big nation state that we have today is a result of capitalism. Uh, without capitalism, you can't have this kind of state. So again, you know, um, the way to control these uh, these big firms was always the nation state. Now, of course, we have multinational companies who are active around the world. But, you know, basically it would be very easy to control these firms because conferences like the G7 conferences show that just seven countries in the world hmm. basically decide what happens. That's America, uh, United States, Canada, Germany, Great Britain, France, Italy, Japan. Now, seven countries. If those seven countries were agreed on what to do, let's say about tax havens uh, or by, <laughs> about taxing uh, big companies, then you could control these companies within a minute. The problem is that these seven countries don't uh, agree politically what to do about taxes. And the biggest tax haven there is, is the United States. 
And as long as the te- uh, United States think that it is a good idea to steal the taxes from other countries, there's nothing to be done. But that is not an economic law, but a political uh, stupidity. Hmm. Yes, yeah, so, so it's not an institutional deficit. It's not that we lack the institutional capacity. No, no, no. It's a, it's basically nationalism. Americans yeah. think that it is a good idea to steal the taxes from other countries. So, <laughs> and that's what so that's why they do it. And then you know that basically many people who think well, the state is something bad and it doesn't I don't like paying taxes and so on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, many people don't understand the uh, danger of not paying taxes or yeah but uh, it is not a economic law that multinational companies don't pay taxes but then we come to the weak point of capitalism after you've developed all the strengths of capitalism and the connections between women's liberation welfare state and democracy and even as a premise of democracy And then you say there is a, a fundamental weakness, which is also what was the strength earlier, namely growth. Uh, how, how does that become the fundamental weakness of capitalism in your view? Well, you know, as we said, and um, uh, capitalism was a very wonderful system because uh, it created growth and created wealth. The only problem is that capitalism not only produces growth, but also needs growth in order to be stable. As soon as there isn't any growth anymore, uh, capitalism gets into uh, huge crises with millions of um, unemployed. And uh, yes, so we are forced to grow. And of course, everyone knows that it is not possible to grow indefinitely in a definite world. And right now, the Germans or the Danish <laughs> act as if they could use three planets, but everyone knows that we have just one Earth. So this is really not sustainable. We are far beyond the limits of nature. And of course, if we want to survive, <laughs> we have to return into the limits of nature. We cannot just spend three Earths if we have just one planet. It's just impossible. But but many people here would say that the political system, and this is not just people on the right. I spoke to Bill McKibben half a year ago, mm. and and his point is basically that mm. uh, uh, um, I'm trying to uh, re- repeat it loyally. But his point is basically that, and you know he's a socialist and a democrat. But his point is basically that the political system is very slow. That all the things that we like about democracies, accountability, you have standards. You have all kinds of procedures that, and then, and then you have in America for the lobbyists. But even in a well-functioning democracy, you have standards and you have validation processes, all the things that makes the EU very, very complicated at times and, and very slow. And he says, "Well, what what we do have is that we have levers of capitalism that acts very, very fast. And if you can have the financial sector invest in the green transition, then you have." <clears throat> then you have capacity to act and you have a capacity to make renewables fairly cheap and fairly accessible. And I think that is one of the few success stories over the last years is, is the, the the fallen price of solar energy, for instance, and 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 wind energy. So, so he would say, although he is against growth and he read limits to growth in 1972 and he was too young to be in Stockholm. But, you know, you get my point. 
that, that he's all in on. He says, well, that is the only place where you have we have the capacity to make a transition, not just for the global north, because it's not just depending on us anymore. We're no longer just the center of the world, but also to develop an infrastructure for other countries. Uh, how how do you see how do you see this uh, line of reasoning? Well, you know, if green growth were possible, I would be uh, advocating it because, of course, nothing. It is much easier to have green growth instead of green shrinking. My only problem is that um, the uh, um, that ecological energy from solar panels and uh, wind will just not be enough in order to power all these growth. And you know, you have to imagine we have got a huge capitalism that's already uh, somehow using up three times uh, three uh, of the earth. And then people think that this gigantic capitalism should also grow. And that is just not feasible. There is just not enough energy from uh, from solar panels and from <laughs> uh, wind uh, in order to fuel all this immense uh, economy, uh, econo um, uh, this immense economy. It's just not possible. So once you understand that um, climate neutral energy will be rare and expensive, it's just clear that you have to shrink and this that this kind uh, that it is not an option what mckim suggests and then of course we come to the problem that you've developed all the achievements of, of growth uh, achievements that people appreciate and those who didn't get it yet they feel that they should have because they see others others have it so so and i absolutely agree with you that we must liberate ourselves from the whole concept of growth and building our society and our public investment and we're thinking in growth that it's an entire energy consumption way of living that's just not feasible um but but how, how do you make this offer to people say well now we're not growing anymore now we're shrinking how do you make that without saying, and, and you will be poor and you will lose uh, your, your rights and everything? How, how do you make the social contract compatible with green shrinking? Yeah, well, that's the, the basic and important question. And uh, you, you have to understand that's really, really important that this shrinking in itself is a process that you have to govern, that uh, you cannot just leave it to the market or to prices or to coincidence, you have uh, this, the government has to plan uh, this process because otherwise it just would end in complete chaos and millions of unemployed. And uh, if you have this question, was there ever a capitalistic economy that was shrunk without ending in chaos? Then you, you start realizing that there was one example in history, and that is the British war economy in 1939. Now, at the first glance, this is a very amazing uh, thing to claim that uh, now the British war economy is something one should look at in order to uh, plan uh, green shrinking. But Basically, the British did just the same thing that we have to do now, just for other reasons. The problem the British faced in 1939 was that they hadn't 
really seen the Second World War coming because, you know, they did this appeasement policy. They hoped that Hitler would skip his war plans if he got Czechoslovakia, if he got Austria and so on and so on. But in the end, the Second World War came in September 1939 and the British knew that they would be attacked by Hitler because Hitler could only win the Second World War if he managed to invade Great Britain. That was strategically clear. And the British knew that once Hitler attacked, they didn't have enough weapons to defend themselves. So the, the, the only thing that they had left was to shrink their normal economy in order to free the capacities in the uh, factories uh, in order to start building all these weapons that they needed. And this whole military aspect is completely uninteresting for us today. But uh, interesting is how the British managed to th shrink their normal economy within weeks. They didn't take uh, decades to discuss uh, this whole, <laughs> whole operation because it was needed immediately. And so they started shrinking their uh, economy immediately. And that was really very interesting because the British invented, you could say, a real new economic system uh, because it was private and democratic planning economy. It was something completely different from the socialism that was uh, practiced under Stalin at the same time in the Soviet Union, it, because the British didn't socialize anything. Uh, all the factories, the shops, the restaurants, everything stayed private and the managers and uh, uh, owners could just do in their factories and companies whatever they felt was best. But the state or the government told them how much they had to produce and the little goods that were still produced for the civil society, that was the second part of this whole model, was distributed evenly by the government. So what they had was a rationing system. Everyone got the same, the rich and the poor. And that was very, very popular <laughs> because uh, in the end, the poor were better fed during the Second World War than they had been fed before because now they got meat, milk, butter, everything they hadn't been able to afford in peacetime after the uh, big economic downturn after 1929. Now in, during the war, they could afford these basic goods. And uh, of course, it was just relaxing for the society to know that everyone just got the same, that you don't didn't have to worry whether your neighbor had more than you. They all could concentrate on the war effort because it was assured that it was somehow just when it came to basic needs. So, and I think that we should learn from this British experience. Of course, that's very important to know. We would be, of course, much richer than the British uh, 39. We would never be as poor, mm -hmm. even if we had uh, to shrink uh, because, uh, of course, the whole economy is much more efficient also energy efficient, so we would profit from the technology uh, and the development that we had in the late, uh, last 80 years. So, so they actually developed a model, and they, almost spontaneously, within a few weeks, 
they developed a model that combined free ownership with production of the public goods that were needed and then with legitimacy in the population. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But then, and that is inspiring. And when you you talk about it, you you want, almost want to be there and try to, 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 to be <laughs> to be part of that normative collective project. But when it then, and I know I'm pushing it here, because, but it is a difficult question. But I think it's also an extremely important question with the with the analogy to the war. Then you'd say, well, in this nation state, we can make this experiment. Can make this in a relative. We can make this together because it's a matter of life and death. Maybe not for me personally, but a matter of life and death of the nation. But uh, <clears throat> when it comes to climate, then you would say, well, we must all do it at the same time. And if the others don't do it, then we won't do it because then we will be losers. We will not be be shrinking alone. I'm. I'm. This is a radical version of the argument because you could also say that. If you did it as an experiment, others would follow, others would be inspired. You'd have political parties in other countries demanding it. But there is this problem with the war metaphor, that it's about life and death now and here. And this is collective action on the entire globe if we're not to lose. How do you see this dilemma? Oh, I think uh, you're completely right. Uh, you know, climate protection is only possible if you do it globally. Because uh, for, uh, for the simple reason that the greenhouse gases don't know borders. They just uh, spread everywhere and it would be completely useless if Denmark or Germany started on climate protection and China would just continue building uh, coal uh, electricity pl uh, coal electricity plants because then, you know, uh, in the end it would uh, just be the same as before. But I uh, think that this idea that the other countries might not uh, participate in climate uh, protection it doesn't mirror reality because, you know, almost all other countries on, in this world will be harder hit by the climate crisis than Denmark or Germany. Because uh, we have mm. this, yeah, we have this advantage of being very, very far in the north. So probably, no one really knows for sure, but probably it will be possible to survive in Denmark or Germany. It will not be comfortable. I think people really tend to think, well, if we survive, it will be okay. No, it will be really, really hard to survive cl the climate crisis, even in Denmark or Germany. But the probability is high that it is possible. Whereas in other countries, uh, according to the World Climate Council, uh, you know, such countries as India, or Indonesia, or let's say Saudi Arabia, are no longer uh, habitable in 2070 when we continue as we do now. I mean, that's just 50 years. Now, so the idea that the Indians just continue building coal plants is out of question because in 50 years there will be no India left. And I think that all countries will start realizing that they have to do something drastic in order to curb uh, climate change. And I think that all countries will be ready to somehow cooperate. Uh, cooperate. The problem is not everyone, the Danish and the Germans included, will start too late because right now, you know, uh, most people just don't see the urgency. No, and that, of course, that is, uh, that, that you know, it's, it feels like we're winning 
so slowly that it's a sure way of losing. You know yeah, exactly. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, but that's a very, I know it's a very tough way of, of putting it. So, so just one last question. Uh, you've been in this field for 40 years now. It's 40 years since, since you saw the, the forest die in, 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 in Germany. How, what, and and I, I I suspect that it's been quite a tough ride because you know uh, things do get worse and worse and we do come slower and slower and the progress that we see are always slower than the damage that is being done at the same time at least that's my feeling of over the last 30 years that uh, what what has made you hopeful over this period what what is what has been inspiring to get you through it and, and get you to keep going and writing books and engaging and to be honest, I don't know, but, uh, because that's very weird. Uh, you know, on an intellectual level, I'm absolutely pessimistic and I don't think that we will make it. But on the emotional level, I am, for some strange reason, completely optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I don't uh, uh, say that this is in any way rational, but that's the way I feel. Uh, my brain is pessimistic and my heart is optimistic. That's a wonderful way of, of ending. Thank you so much for your time. I hope to meet you one day. No, I hope so too. I hopefully I'll be coming to uh, Copenhagen and then, of course, I would be honored to meet you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, bye bye. Det var min samtale med Ulrike Hermann og lad mig gentage at bogen Kapitalismens afslutning, hvorfor vækst forværrer klimakrisen og hvordan vi skal leve i fremtiden, er udkommet på forlaget Lindhardt og Ringhoff, og du kan købe den i den boghandel, hvor du plejer at købe dine bøger. I næste uge, der skal vi tale med en anden fantastisk kvinde. Hun hedder Sandrine Dixon Lecleve. Hun er medpræsident for Romklubben. Det var Romklubben, der for 50 år siden udgav bogen Grænser for Vækst, der blev starten på hele den europæiske miljøbevægelse. Romklubben udgav for et år siden en ny bog, som er et nyt hovedværk og en ny afdækning af klimakrisen og alle de andre problemer, som den hænger sammen med. Bogen hedder Earth for All, og Sondrine Dixon Lecleve vil i næste uge fortælle os, hvorfor det altid er kvinder, der har stået i front i klimabevægelsen, og hvorfor det stadig er det. Så vil hun fortælle, hvordan vi kommer ud af klimakrisen. Hun mener, at det kan gøres, og det er svært, men vi kan godt. Denne udgave af Langsomme Samtaler var produceret af vores gode kammerater og hjælper, Mads Adam Wiener. Tak til Mads for at hjælpe os. Tak til jer for at lytte med. Vi høres ved igen i næste uge, hvor vi tager den store tur med Sondrine Dixon Leclerc.